Welcome to the Ask Brian Podcast Radio Show, where you'll hear from some of the most successful founders and CEOs of businesses and startups, sharing their best advice for success, and even some stories on how their mistakes actually make them even more successful. Now, here are your hosts, Brian and Tracy. Welcome to the Ask Brian Radio Show on KHS 1220 98.1 FM. Now, if that song does not get you pumped up for July 4th holiday, nothing else will. Got a point, actually. Really, All you right. do. This is the time of year when you need to have that Rocky song. You have to have that Rocky spirit. Hey, yo, yo, let's go. Out of my <laughs> way. <laughs> not- that was fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> All these letters that don't begin with an E. <laughs> it's close, though. F is, like, right after E. Yeah. One is excellent and one is failing. <laughs> True. All right. And excellence is one of the ones. So now excellence is out. And so, since you're an engineer, that's out. So. Uh, uh, uh. T- and t- and t- we t- don't empathize, so that's out. It's three. Uh, you got a lot left. Anyway, for those who have not listened to the <laughs> show, ask Brian. We're weekly, and we have an episode each week where we interview either a startup company, a CEO, or somebody who can teach you something about business. This week we have a very special guest as well. We'll be introducing him shortly. Before we do that, though, people have always asked, and we begin the show each week for those viewers who have never listened, why Ask Brian is spelled with an E. Most people spell Brian B-R-I-A-N or B-R-Y-A-N. Why in the world did you spell it B-R-I-A-N? I always tell them, well, because the engineer is Irish, and because he's Irish and he's O'Brien, that's the way we go, O'Brien. So, Mr. O'Brien Patrick from <laughs> Ireland, what are the real reasons why we use E? Well, there's a lot of actual – there's a couple of words that we have that are kind of like a theme for Ask Brian. In fact, you actually kind of threw a couple of them out there, which was engineer because, you know, you need the engineer with this part of the show. It's me. hey Outside of that, you did take away empathy and excellence because well, – Because we gave up. We're not going to empathize anymore. Yeah, I guess not. And that's not very ex- – That's not very excellent of you. <laughs> we already did excellence. I know. I'm just being coy. Anyways, outside of that, we also have uh, effort because we give 110% effort in uh, everything we do on the Ask Brian show. Another one we have is uh, experts because everybody that happens to appear on the Ask Brian show happens to be an expert in whatever their field may be. And then the, the last two that we have happen to be kind of sound very similar to each other, but one of them is they excitement. Don't, they don't sound similar. They just have the same. They're synonymous. With meaning. They are. They Close. are. Okay. But one's excitement and... Enthusiasm! Woo-woo-woo! There you go. That works. That was a pretty bad woo-woo-woo. i got to work on that. <laughs> ne- next episode, we'll have a bigger woo-woo. <laughs> a bigger woo-woo. <laughs> More polished, right? Exactly. And so we have our co-host, and her name is Tracy. Tracy, you there? Tracy Elizabeth with an E. The Forge. It counts. <laughs> yeah. So we have our guest. His name is Dean in dot, and we're going to add on the dot com. So, Dean, are you there? <laughs> yes, I am. Thank you. <laughs> so, first of all, you have a pretty exciting background, so that's really good, and people do not know. So, what is your background? 
Uh, I've been a banker most of my life, but uh, I had a couple of stint as a chief financial officer for a large conglomerate, and I did some consulting work in the tech world about 20 years ago. But primarily, right now, today, I'm a commercial. I've been a commercial banker for going on 10 years now. So, Pretty 20 much. years ago, when you were in the tech world, you were working on uh, on what the iPod. Uh, even before <laughs> that, actually, I ended up in the tech world because. I was an investment banker during the dot-com boom, and I got hired away by a large consulting firm, Deloitte, to go, you know, work on developing tech companies, and then I ended up, you know, joining one of the multiple different companies in the industry. This was, you know, when Amazon was only selling books, and, you know, the Yahoo was a big deal, and AOL was how everybody connected to the internet. So I spent about five years in that industry. Yeah, I remember, all that I remember with the AOL was they also charged you by the minute. Nowadays, uh, yeah, well, it was a very different world back then. <laughs> of course, you didn't get connected as quickly either. I mean, yeah, in the old days, you heard like, <laughs> Mom, why did you plug out the phone? You're, I, I'm on the phone. What? That's Excuse right. Me. I couldn't even have a call. Nowadays, you know, people walk around on the internet like they're in a, uh, a zombie. It's like if you walk down the street, there's like 50 people walking up and down the street and they're all watching their phone. Quite a different world. Very um, different. The engineer is admitting it. And he didn't even say without any further ado. You're the one that says ado first. How do you spell ado? A-D-I-E-U. And why do I like that word? Because every single letter except the D is a vowel. And this is Adult Sesame Street. Also true. Okay. And the Cookie Monster will be on oh. next week. So I'm glad we I'm glad we <laughs> clarified that Adult Sesame Street just so everyone is clear. Because, you know... <laughs> Well, the podcast world definitely needs to know that. We're going to be the next adult Sesame Street. So let me ask a couple of questions. I mean, how does one get into Deloitte on, you know, in the beginning? I mean, I actually uh, had an undergraduate degree in accounting, and Deloitte was a big firm. There was Arthur Anderson when I was going to school, and uh, who's now out of business. And I think that yep. Arthur Young, who merged with Ernst and Whitney, uh, so, I mean, it's been quite a few things here, uh, but I had an accounting background. Uh, was your background in accounting, finance, or you just had a general background and got into the finance world? You know, I got recruited initially as an investment banker. Uh, we, one of the companies we were working on to take public, I got hired away to go be part of that company, and that company was pretty much staffed or, you know, founded by a, a number of Deloitte executives. So what happened was when that company went public, we left, and pretty much the CEO took all his crew with him and went back to Deloitte to do consulting in a different area. So that's kind of how I ended up there. Now, when you say doing consulting, I mean, I always think of consulting on a one-on-one with some business owner that has a furniture store that wants to develop an internet presence, whatever. I I imagine your consulting is a much higher level, especially with a big firm like Deloitte. So what are the types of things that a consultant for Deloitte would work on? We, and during, you know, my tenure there, I was a business systems analyst. So we worked on this project when Hewlett Packard and Compact Computers merged. So that was our project. Our project was to go in there and, you know, make the whole process work, you know, synchronize to different parts of the company. You know, it was a huge project. I think there was like something like, you know, 1,100 consultants, you know, on the HP campus during the time. That's a so, lot of consult. That's more than many companies have. 
Yeah, I mean there was a there was you know there was uh, Anderson Consulting back then. Anderson Consulting folks were there. Microsoft Consulting folks were there. We represented HP's data analytical side of things back then. You know, business intelligence was a very new thing. Where you know one of the biggest products for consultants was to go into a company and tell them like, hey, you got all this data. Here's how you use it. You know, something that's you know elementary in today's businesses, basically. <laughs> Absolutely. And so how did you go from consulting to, to banking? Uh, when the, you know, when the House of Cards came tumbling down in 2002, I left and went back to school, got my MBA. And then when I graduated, didn't want to go back into consulting. And I decided, you know, essentially join a small business. So I ended up getting recruited to work for conglomerate, probably like a 30 to $40 million a year company with, you know, eight or nine different divisions primarily in industrial products. And I was CFO there for about a good four, until the second financial crisis, or what they call the great financial crisis. There's a lot of crises you've been involved in. Uh, yeah, two, two of them all. Well, actually, three now after last year. <laughs> <laughs> but the banking world is completely different. I mean, it's one thing to work for as a consultant. You're telling, okay, we've analyzed the data, and this is what we think. You know, working for a company as a CFO, okay, you're on one end, hey, we need to raise money. We need to have enough funds so we can do all the projects we want to do, meet our budget, uh, potentially go public. If you're not a public company, potentially publicly, companies may or get a bond or may have to go out to a secondary offering to, to raise funds, etc. You know, it's different being on the CFO side versus the banking side, which is, okay, all right, you want to borrow $20 million? Uh, let me think about it. You know, uh, it's kind of like the buyer and the seller, right? A right. completely different side of things. So what a lot of people on our show have had to get either the PP loans or have actually had to go out and borrow money to keep their business afloat during those crises that you were through and even to expand and grow their business. So what we'd like to do on today's show is go through some more analysis on from that perspective because you have a different perspective than most of our listeners. So without any further ado, <laughs> we're going to ask some questions. So the first question we have is if I wanted to go out and borrow money, okay, what's the most important thing to do? Is it to clean up my financial statements so the balance sheet and income statement look good? Is it to review my tax returns? Is it, you know, what are the things as a banker, not as a CFO, that the banker is going to look for to decide whether or not to loan $500,000 to the widget company? Well, good question. That's exactly what I do. Not exactly, but part of what I do here uh, is actually being on the banker's side of that. And I think that in my experience, that the key thing when a potential customer comes and asks to borrow is do they know exactly what they want to use the money for and how that money will actually add value to their business, even if it's a startup. You know, what I run into a lot is people feel that they need, say, like you say, they need a million dollars, they need $500,000. But when you question the level of thought or and or analysis they put into how they're going to spend that money, that's where I usually see people trip up. You know, they make a lot of assumptions. They don't really do their, their due diligence enough. So I think the key thing I look for is someone who, you know, wants to borrow knows exactly every, where every single penny of the borrowed funds will go and can demonstrate that, that how that use of those funds will add value and, you know, to the business, a.k.a. increase profitability, so on and so forth. 
But there are always going to be assumptions, right? So, for instance, if I'm company X and I say, oh, you know what? I've been distribu- a distributor for all these years, and I've been using outsourcing the production to plant A, and I'm going to build my own plant and then go out, out and with my own plant, I'll be able to, you know, triple my profits. But what people don't realize is that, you know, when they're going out to another plant, I'm using excess capacity of another plant. They don't have to have all the investment that they need to build the plant. And if the business has a slow period, unless they're going to outsource it and use it uh, for other companies, they're going to have trouble. So there's a lot of assumptions made when people go out and borrow that money. And, you know, and it's all forecasting. Who knows? Nobody knows about the forecasting, including the stock market today, right? People investing yeah. in the stock market. Price earnings ratio was big when I was a kid. Now, uh, you know, PE ratio. Go to a company like an Amazon or some of these companies that don't even have profits that are, you know, selling for billions and billions of dollar valuations. Tesla is a good example of doesn't make any sense, right? I used to think the same thing of Amazon 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, going back to your question, I mean, from what I noticed, if you're looking at, you know, a potential borrower that's an established company, for example, like a manufacturer like you, going back to the example you're using, most of the time you can see a delineation between, you know, established companies versus, you know, small business operators. You know, the established companies do their due diligence really well because they've had the track record, they have the staff, they have the financial people, and they know how to do analysis, they know how to project. But going back to a small business request, which is, you know, probably 90% of our market, you don't really see that. You know, a lot of assumptions are made based on what someone told someone or what someone understands, you know, things or their family members tell them. And that's where the challenges are to borrow the money. I've been told in the real estate industry, you need a certain ratio for income, percentage, same thing, total debt. What are the types of numbers that you look at? that is typical standard numbers for the small business owner? For the small business owner, I think the key thing is, you know, one of the key obstacles that they have to pass through is we take the amount of money that we loan them and then we spread that out over a term, say three years or five years. And a business owner needs to understand that, you know, they for every dollar they borrow that they have to pay it back within a three to five year period that their business can generate enough cash flow to make those payments in that period. That's where a lot of the smaller operators, the smaller business owners, don't really do that projection very well. It's usually saying, hey, if I get half a million bucks, I can buy this much more product, I can sell it for this much more, but it doesn't go out three years. They don't really think much you know, about how they scale, how they make it sustainable. So, you know, I think the, the key thing for, for, from my experience, you know, here dealing with smaller, you know, business requests is, you know, they need to think out further and, you know, do a little bit, you know, more detailed due diligence than just, hey, if I buy, I can buy, you know, X more amount more widgets, I can sell it for this much more profit. You know, that that is difficult to underwrite for a banker. Well, you know that widgets are probably the most popular item sold in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and the next question is, typically when a small business person is coming to you, are you giving them a loan or a line of credit? It depends on the use. That's actually a really good question because a lot of business, you know, small business requests that we get, you know, people are just asking for a line, for a line. But how banks determine whether it's a line of credit versus whether it's a term loan really is the use of funds. 
So the typical line of credit qualifier is working capital, which basically means that the basics is that you sold X amount of products or provided X amount of service. It takes time for you to get paid, but you know you got to keep the lights on. You got payroll to make. That's a working capital situation. You're just floating the cash flow. So in those situations, a line makes sense because they just need to bridge, you know, 30, 60, 90, 120 days before they get paid. So every time they get paid, they pay the line down and then wait till the next cycle and then draw against the line again for payroll or rent or whatnot. On the other spectrum is term loans. Uh, Term loans are usually when you borrow for something, an asset that can be collateralized usually. So you're buying a piece of equipment. Real estate, obviously, are all term loans. You know, you're doing improvements or, you know, you're expanding to a different location. You need to do, you know, tenant improvements to the new location. Those are all term loans usually. Term loans are based on you purchasing something tangible that the bank will use as collateral. So we're talking about the differences between lines of credit factoring, and you said basically it comes to the fact that in a line of credit, they're actually buying assets, or, excuse me, factoring was where you're buying assets, correct? And that, that, that's correct. the distinction? But the question came from one of our viewers was, why is that not usury? Because factoring is such a high high rate of return. And like, for instance, the state of California, the maximum interest rate that you can charge is 10%. Now, there are credit card companies and other companies mm-hmm. that do charge more than 10%, but they have exemptions. Like bankers, they have exemptions. But if you don't have an exemption, a California lender's license, etc., you can get certain exemptions. But if you don't have the exemption, there is no interest allowed on the loan. That's what usury is. And how do factors get around that? Uh, I'll be honest, I, I don't know the details to that. I've never been in the factoring industry. From my understanding, the key difference is when you borrow from the bank, the bank doesn't take possession of the collateral, whereas in factoring, you're technically selling them the collateral, which is the receivable. So you're selling a uh, you know $500,000 account receivable. You're selling it for $380,000. So even though you're making $120,000 profit, there is a risk there that you're not going to co-opt as well. That's correct, yeah. So technically, I think technically it's not an interest rate. It's a discount. It's a it's discount on the paper itself. So you're, you're buying that the right to get that 500000 but you know, for a much less amount, but you're taking the risk in case you don't get it, basically. Well, that, that leads to some additional questions. You, you mentioned earlier that most of the bank loans that are not lines of credit are basically when you're loaning money out so an asset can be used to create additional income, correct? Correct, yeah. The difference really between a a line of credit and a term loan really is the use of the funds, as I mentioned, you know. But what about security, though? Can you have an unsecured or a secured line of credit, and can you have an unsecured bank loan for a a plant? Uh, Good question. Yes, working capital lines, lines of credit are usually unsecured, usually. You know, as it pertains to small business owners, it's usually unsecured. It's a signature loan. So, you know, the collateral is your promise to pay back, basically. Yes, you can have term loans from lines of credit. And usually what happens in those situations is when a borrower, you know, doesn't service the line of credit or there's a problem with the servicing of the line of credit or, you know, that's when the banks come in and say, okay, you know, you can't just service this on an interest-only basis. You've got to pay us off the whole balance. And obviously, you know, most borrowers can't afford to pay off the line at one go, so they ask for time, and then that's when the bank terms out that whatever the balance is. So that's the conversion of a line of credit into a term loan, but it's usually in some sort of an 
you know, not a positive situation. It's something where, you know, the bank doesn't, you know, wants the borrower to pay the, the line back in full. What is the criteria for SBA loans? Ooh, good question. <laughs> um, Hope I didn't stop you. <laughs> there are basics, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of criteria, eligibility, uh, minimum net worth, but I won't, you know, go into the details. It's published, but it's like reading Greek out there because you're reading uh, – CFRs, you know, codes of federal regulations. But the basic thing on SBA loans, on the criteria is, you know, your business has to be, uh, has to generate less than X amount of revenues. And it's not standardized across the board. It depends on what industry you're in, what type of business you're in. So if you go on the SBA website, they'll break that down for you based on the, uh, the NAICS code of your business. So, but it's usually a maximum of total revenues was followed by maximum earnings, EBITDA, you know, profit. And then after that, it defaults to the number of employees. That's another critical thing. So those are just the basic eligibility requirements. And then above and beyond that, there's so many different types of SBA loans. There's 504 loans for properties for real estate, and then 7A loans for both real estate and non-real estate. And then there are subsequently different requirements for different types of loans. Also. So I come to the bank and I go, you know what? My widget bank business, and there's a, I know there's a lot of widget businesses out there, but my widget business, I need to borrow $4 million. Okay. So how do you determine whether or not it's going to go line of credit, whether or not it's going to be a an unsecured or secured loan either on the LOC line of credit or regular term loan, or whether or not it's going to go to SBA and other other programs? Um, it depends on the use. The first thing we ask is, what is the use? For, in your case, what is the use of the $4 million? So you need to break it down, and then we will determine from the breakdown of the use what portion of it would be a line, what portion of it could be a term loan. It depends on the use. So is it good to say if you're using it for working capital to pay, you know, hey, listen, you might have payroll issues, you may have problems all, all along, you want to just have that extra ability, or if you get a, a big order in and you want to buy, you know, You've only been producing 10,000 widgets per month, but now Walmart says, we'll buy it, but we need 500,000 widgets per month. Can you up it? Is that all lines of credit or is that a term? That's a mix because the working capital is separate from that because if you want to make more widgets for Walmart, that means you're buying more inventory. So that becomes an inventory loan, and that usually is a term loan. But if you need a portion of, you know, your growth to service Walmart is you have to hire more people, right? You have to do, you know, more intangible aspects of your operations, the cost, that is. That's not actually buying inventory or buying something tangible. So that portion will be separated out and will be, a line will be created. But in SBA loans, lines cannot be in perpetuity. So the, eventually the bank will determine a point in time where that portion of the loan that's a line of credit will then be converted also into a term loan. One very important point for your viewers is there are, uh, SBA loans have no lines of credit. Uh, you can start off with a line of credit, but you know there will be a point in time where you need to convert that into a term loan. What's the typical time period before it has to be converted? Uh, it usually depends on the use, but on average, I'd say a year. Does the SBA give loans? I know this is not, may not be your expertise, but does the SBA give loans to brand new companies that have no revenue? Uh, they absolutely do. That's actually a really good question because the SBA guidelines to lenders, you know, federally regulated lenders like, like us, 
is you cannot decline a loan based on projections. You have to allow it. And the one primary type of SBA loan that is set up for that is called an SBA 7A loan, which has a maximum of $5 million, And it's projection-based. But where it gets a little bit convoluted is when you apply for a loan, the most of the, with a bank that's an SBA loan, the SBA technically only guarantees the loan and has higher level guidelines or criteria for their guarantees to stick. The money still comes out of the bank. You know, it's just that we have a guarantee by the government. If the loan doesn't get repaid, goes into default, then the government pays us back. So that being said, you know, not all SBA loans are equal among lenders. You know, different lenders, the bare minimum requirements they meet so that they can get the guarantee. But every lender above and beyond that has its appetite. You know, I'll give an example. Like our bank, we our appetite isn't for contractors. So when contractors come to us for an SBA loan, we don't do SBA loans for contractors. The reason for that, why, is, you know, it's probably something in the history of the bank. We got hurt before in contract lending to contractors. And you go to other banks, they may not have a problem with that at all. So that's where it gets a little bit confusing to business owners out there. Not all SBA loans are have you know are created equal among different banks. So that's good. Now, when you say the SBA is guaranteeing the loan, what's the incentive for the bank to to go through the due diligence? I mean, if if I knew that I could loan out a hundred million dollars and I'm in the banking business and I'm going to be guaranteed because the government's going to pay me back, what's my incentive to be you know really difficult and make sure every every I is dotted and T is crossed. Is it solely because the SBA uh, won't won't pay on the guarantee unless Absolutely. That's exactly the reason why. There are two types of SBA bank lenders out there. There's PLPs, what they call PLPs that are preferred lenders, which have approval authority at the bank level. And then there are those that don't have that status. That means every loan that they do has to be sent, you know, in California has to be sent to Sacramento. You know, that's where the SBA headquarters for this state is, and they, the SBA has to approve that before the lender can, you know, close the loan, so to speak. Whereas if banks like mine are PLPs, we have delegated authority. So we just write up the loan, we underwrite it, we close it, we disperse the monies, and then we send the file to the SBA. They don't even audit it, and only they do audit it as, you know, on an annual, like, review kind of basis, but not all loans get audited, you know. So... The incentive for the bank to underwrite to ensure that all the requirements are met is exactly what you said. So if if a loan goes sideways and is in default and we go to the SBA and say, hey, you know, this went sideways, we'd like our, you know, the portion that's been guaranteed, they audit it. If we made a mistake, we don't get that money back from the government. Tracy had a question. I didn't want to make sure she got that question answered. Well, I mean, it was just a personal question, really, since I have your ear. So you were talking before about businesses having projections that go out three years. When you're saying projections, can you define what it is that you're looking for within those product, uh, those projections, P&L, what, or what, what you're looking for? We want to make sure that based on the money we lend, you could, you know, let me take a step back. The projections are based on the assumption that you get the money that you want to borrow, right? So we want to make sure that that money is put to work and your projections show that the company generates enough cash flow, enough net profit to repay the loan. That's what we do. Okay, so you're... So projections with gross sales and then showing all the expenses and then what the net is and then what that's targeted to for the next three years. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, when we underwrite loans, 
you know, based on projections, we kind of look at your historical, you know, or if you're a startup, you know, we do our research to find out, you know, what the cost to make a widget is and how much the market price for a widget is. And then we kind of validate it by looking at your projections to make sure it's, it's apples to apples, that it makes sense, that it's not, you know, reaching, so to speak, you know. Not just my fantasy projections. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, going back to the first question just now, that's what happens in more than 50% of the time when I have a, a prospective customer sit in front of me and, you know, they don't do that due diligence in that detail with the P&L. So they think that, you know, X number of dollars now will equate to much more sales, which buys more product, and they look at it exponentially. And sometimes when you look at the industry, you're like, that really doesn't make sense, you know? So that, that's one of the key problems I run into for small business requests. So I have a question that I just, you know, we're, we're coming up on celebrating our American history, and part of the American spirit is built on entrepreneurship, which is focused on lowering your taxable income. But it, then it becomes very difficult as an entrepreneur to be able to secure a loan if you're lowering your taxable income. So do you have any tips for business owners to, like if you're wanting to get a mortgage, it really feels like that if you're an employee that gets a W-2, it's like a easy peasy. But if you have to be, if your financials are your financials through your business, then it becomes a lot more complicated to get a loan. Can you speak to that? Yeah, actually, you know, for commercial banks or commercial bankers like myself, we look at tax returns and we adjust a lot out of the tax returns because, and we look at financial statements, you know, there's always a difference. We are, we, we are, bankers are completely underwriters, the technical people in the bank that do the number crunching. We're very well in tune with how taxes, how financials are reported through taxes and we adjust all that. You know, uh, an example is, the, the simple example is, you know, if you own property under your business, you can depreciate it. Depreciation is an expense. As bankers, if, you know, we look at a tax return, a business tax return, we immediately take all that depreciation and amortization of equipment, whatnot, those expenses, and we add it back because we know those are non-cash expenses. Those are just meant to reduce your tax, uh, your tax liability. So we do a lot of adjustments to come up with the actual cash because we're, what we're looking for is not what you report to Uncle Sam on the profit and loss basis. We're looking for really how much does the business spit out in cash flow to make the loan payments. So the only problems that, in my experience, I've run into is when, you know, for example, you get a gas station operator or a liquor store operator and shows you his tax returns and says, oh, by the way, you know, I make X much more, but I just don't report it. <laughs> now, that's not going to work, basically. Well, <laughs> yes, the, that, that's how Al Capone got caught. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Sir, <laughs> <laughs> so, what is the biggest loan that you've ever uh, uh, ever underwritten? Uh, north of a hundred and fifty million. And that was for the swimming pool in your backyard. <laughs> what, what, was that for a company? Uh, it was actually for a, a large housing development project. And then, what is the smallest loans you've made? Hundred thousand dollars less. Hundred thousand, yeah. You make hundred thousand dollar loans. I, I, I didn't even think the bank could find it profitable for that. Uh, no, it's actually very profitable. And also, on the banking side, you have to understand we're governed by the Fed, which has requirements on small business lending. 
I don't know if you have experience with business loans. Every time you get a loan, you always ask the question is, what's the total revenues of your company? You know, when you, when you open an account or something, it's because the government, you know, any company that earns less than a million dollars, you know, has preferential treatment by the government towards the banks that they, we need to do more of that business. We get gauged on the number of smaller loans that we do, small business loans that we do. How do you guys get rated? Hi, that's a very good question. I mean, that's a convoluted process by the Fed and their auditors, basically. It's usually capital. There's three different tiers. I don't want to get into the details, but it's quite complicated. Most tier one, tier with 30 two, tier seconds three, left. <laughs> yeah. It's, basically, the, the, the Fed gives us a formula for three different capital tiers, and you know, we, get, we get ranked or you know, the strength of the bank is based on how much capital, how good our capital is in each of those three tiers. Well, unfortunately, we're at our end. We'll have you back another time. KHS 1220, 98.1 FM. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Ask Brian Radio Show. You can listen to us every Thursday on KTHS AM 1220 and FM 98.1 or via Facebook Live or anytime wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit AskBrian.com to join the conversation and ask us your business questions and we'll answer them on our next episode. That's askbrien.com.